The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Captain O'Connor, I'm Commander Riker. If you'll turn over the inoperative part to Commander Data, we can begin repairs. Good then. Commander, I leave this in your capable hands. And thank you for beaming me here and enabling me to see a truly beautiful woman. You have the majestic carriage and loveliness that could surely be traced back to the noblest families. Well, I'm sure you've said that to many ladies before, and it was no more true then than it is now. But it's how I say it that's really important. The warmth, the attraction that I have for you. The attraction that we share. <laughs> Captain O'Connor, if you follow Commander Data, you can get started right away. sex appeal. Sexual attraction in this context is not a part of my programming. I'm an android. Well then, have you seen any good-looking computers lately? It is Thursday, May 15th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today on this wonderful spring day, just before the long weekend, the May 2-4 weekend, even though May 2-4 is next weekend for some reason, but we call this weekend the May 2-4 weekend. Today on the show, everything you ever already thought you knew about sex, were, but we're probably, you know, you don't talk about with your friends and acquaintances. Uh, sex, politics, religion, those are the dinner table taboos that we always hear about. And today we're going to be talking about sex. If you want to join in on the conversation, 519-661-3600 is the number to call. And our email is just right, chrw at gmail.com. And of course, you can always check out our all-purpose website, justrightmedia.org, where all those information tidbits about the show are right there, including a complete archive of all of our past shows. Now, I've certainly uh, discussed politics and religion on this show uh, many, many times and really only peripherally touched upon sexual matters on other shows that might have dealt with issues like, oh, abortion or freedom of speech. And of course, uh, we already delved uh, quite in detail into the subject of love way back on our Valentine's Day edition, which again, you can get at justrightmedia.org and which, I must state, might have been my beginning point for today's show as well. But since I only get an hour a week, okay, to expand on these subjects, I try to avoid too much repetition other than what is necessary perhaps to establish a context of a discussion. Certainly many of our laws, customs, and cultural values are explicitly structured around the fact of human sexuality and human uh, sexual relationships, the institution of marriage being just one of these manifestations. And uh, fortunately, certainly in this century and in the last half of the last one, if there was a single area of current law 
where consent is still held to be in the highest priority, I think sex would be it. Because uh, non-consensual sex we call rape. And rape, in turn, I don't think it can even be properly described as sex. Although, as we may find out later, a rape fantasy could be a completely different issue. I don't know if we'll get that far. But broadly speaking, non-consensual sex, whatever it might be called and however it might manifest itself, is widely outside my focus of discussion today. Of course, that also automatically excludes any discussion of children who, by definition, have not yet attained an age of consent. So I want to make it clear that's not what the focus is today. We've had that focus many times, and we'll do so again in the future. But today I actually want to uh, look more at the motivation and the impulse, the psychology of sex, because it influences so much of what we see in the media, in our politics, and all sorts of things. Now, in an age when attitudes towards sexuality have become so open and so celebrated on the one hand, there is at the same time in society, in the one we live in anyway, a strangely prohibitive and restrictive attitudes towards sexual matters, a, a political correctness almost that has made talking about sex almost as uncomfortable as discussing issues of race, religion, ethnicity, and physical or mental handicaps. Sex is a very uncomfortable subject, particularly to talk about uh, for a great many people. I think uh, part of the discomfort is a psychological byproduct of uh, being confronted with sexual ideas and situations that might threaten or challenge some preconceived idea on which someone's very identity is based. And let's be clear here, you know, sex as an element of human individual identity itself is a very critical component of what a person is, of what that person's perspective on every aspect of life will be. So, you know, me, I'm a heterosexual male, I, have to, I see the world that way. And uh, I think the principles, uh, and of course that's the only kind of world I can express today, because that's in terms of my personal taste, because I'll be talking about that a bit. But, of course, I think the principles that I want to outline today apply to all kinds of relationships, um, sexual, now we're sticking to the sex here, and, uh, you know, I think talking about sex is uncomfortable for yet another reason. There's a sense of irrationality, isn't there, when it comes to sexual matters, and specifically to the sex act itself? Kind of a lack of logic that is said to transcend our relatively clear-headed thinking for the rest of the time. I don't buy into this uh, really for a second, but a lot of people seem to adhere to it. And many of our laws reflect uh, this view of human behavior. Uh, you know, the theme was taken to its modern symbolic extreme, I guess, by, by the portrayal of Vulcans in all of the Star Trek series. You know, here you, here you have this whole species of humanoid beings who repress their emotions and their sexual drive to the point that once every seven years, they get a seven-year itch. Talk about a seven-year itch, which if they can't scratch, they just might kill you. You know, that's, that's pretty bad. So, uh, you know, just ask Captain Kirk or Tom Paris, uh, the shows, of course, <laughs> of Star Trek where they deal with this, which are always symbolic of human relationships. But all human beings are all se also sexual beings, uh, whatever else they might be in any other given context. And I think sexual identity involves gender, uh, sexual preference, those, those things I would call physical, and values, which are philosophical and psychological. And of course, I know there's some people who think that just talking about sex is almost equivalent to having dirty thoughts. And we'll talk about that a little later. And if they believe that such thoughts ha you know, carry a moral price, then their discomfort can go right through the roof. 
If you fall into this category, well, I've got to warn you, the whole show today is about the theme of sex, specifically sexual motivation and impulse, more on the psychological. And again, if, uh, you know, if love is certainly a part of all of this, but we have to, I think, look at each component separately so that uh, we can understand and then put together the whole picture later on. Now, to make my next point, I have to do something a little more on a personal level here. And uh, I guess this has to do with uh, basically the whole issue of sexual attraction, the, the, the very fundamental of it. What is it that makes us find someone or something sexually attractive? Now, most of my family and friends uh, know that I have a kind of a thing, okay, about model actress Terry Hatcher, who, by the way, uh, was the object of the sex appeal comment made in our opening clip from Star Trek The Next Generation. And in that episode, the then-relatively unknown Hatcher appeared in a bit part as a transporter operator in an appearance that might otherwise have been called a cameo, you know, had it occurred after her rise to, to fame, which was much later, as Lois Lane in the mid-1990s TV series Lois and Clark, and of course today as Susan Meyer in the mega-hit uh, Desperate Housewives. It's funny, when you, I guess when you're famous, it's a cameo. When you're not famous, it's a bit part. But uh, Hatcher is also well known for her appearance on shows like Frasier and Seinfeld, particularly that famous quote, you know, when she proclaimed on Seinfeld, they're real and they're spectacular. Well, now, like, you know, many other Star Trek fans of the 1980s genera uh, Next Generation series, uh, when I first saw that scene with the unknown Hatcher, there's nothing about her or the scene that would have distinguished for me her sex appeal from any other attractive actress who could have been put in that role. And of course it's only in retrospect that I'd even have been aware of who the actor playing the transport operator in that episode ever was. And uh, it wasn't until I caught myself watching in the mid-1990s, quite unexpectedly, clicking around on the TV set, a few episodes of a TV series, Lois and Clark, that my awareness of her, uh, shall we say, particular physical attractiveness began to impress itself upon me. I remember my sister later commenting to me. She says, hey, I know why you've been watching that show Lois and Clark now. That Terry Hatcher is kind of hot, she says. So I guess my secret was out, you know, but uh, well, maybe the wallpaper on one of my computers could have been a clue too, but who knows. And, of course, this can be anybody. I mean, other people I've considered in this regard that I kind of have just a special place, you know, is even people like Goldie Hawn and other actresses that you've kind of admired. I think Goldie Hawn's a sweetie. I still think she's great today. But I've often wondered when considering my own sexual tastes, what distinguishes those actresses or, quote, sex symbols, let's say, who I might like a lot from those who I might still view as very attractive, okay, but don't particularly like a lot, okay? Why are some more uh, subjectively attractive to us, even though we may perceive their objective uh, attractiveness on a different level? Now, I've used the word sex symbol here for a specific reason, because what I'm trying to do is I'm talking about sexual attraction and impulse outside of any realistic expectation or even desire, really, of having any potential relationship with the object of that sexual attraction, if you know what I mean. It's about as generic uh, a sexual attraction as you can get. So why do we find some people any more or less physically attractive than others? Is it strictly physical? Is it hormonal? Is it out of the realm of human rationality? I think to any outsider looking in, it would sure look that way. You know, you've, you've heard that, you know, what does she see in him? 
Or what does he see in her? You know, the kind of questions that come to mind sometimes. But I would suggest to you today that physical attraction is based on a lot more than physical attraction, even though you're not consciously aware of it. I've often found a reverse phenomenon. Maybe this, you, you, you felt this too. You know, you see someone you think is extraordinarily attractive. Then you hear them talk or they say something that's not quite right or that rubs you the wrong way, and suddenly uh, they just don't look that good anymore for some reason, do they? It's, it's a funny thing that, that your mind can work that way. Uh, to say nothing of the infamous and numerous jokes you hear, you know, about sexual attraction when somebody's drunk, you know, they seem to look better with their, each passing drink, but when they wake up in the morning, uh, the attraction could even suddenly turn into a revulsion. So it's a very subjective thing, and of course it can be quite illusionary. Now, getting back to my story here, uh, my ostensibly physical attraction to actress Terry Hatcher and my example here. This was not an instantaneous thing that happened to me, and I think that's why I kind of picked this one as a great example. When I, when I started first watching the series Lois and Clark, her interpretation of the Lois Lane character was somebody I could really kind of relate to. And after a while, it struck me that not everything about Lois Lane's character was acting. I think uh, we were seeing a little bit of the real Terry Hatcher come through there because she was just so good in the role. And it bears mentioning, by the way, that the series Lois and Clark, uh, being part of the Superman uh, mythology, was a bit different from all the other movies and TV shows in, in that the focus was on personal relationships between Clark Kent, you know, Superman's alter ego, and Lois Lane. And interestingly, this was a project overseen and produced by women, and it was actually intended as a, quote, sexy kind of spin-off type to a, approach to the Superman concept. And, uh, you know, its producers were caught by surprise when the show won a lot of family viewing awards because of its clear moral boundaries that were set by the characters. Of course, you've got Superman there, for heaven's sakes. You've got to be, you know, nobody's more moral than Superman, let's face it. And this Lois Lane was no helpless maiden in need of perpetual saving by Superman either, even though that happened regularly, you know, just like the Prime Directive gets busted regularly <laughs> in Star Trek. But this character was not only good-looking, but intelligent, a real self-starter, you know, investigative reporter, capable of taking care of herself, including martial self-defense. A rather strong female character. But at the same time, the, this Lois Lane character was highly neurotic, compulsively competitive to the point of occasional discretions, and carried a host of character flaws and imperfections that made her kind of a very real and believable character in a lot of ways. Uh, high maintenance, I think, was the term used by Clark Kent, Clint, uh, Kent <laughs> in that show, yeah, which was, by the way, played to the T by uh, Dean Cain. I thought he did a wonderful job of it. It's almost the classic interpretation. But uh, add to that the incredibly gorgeous gowns and dresses and other various outfits that Hatcher would find herself wearing while playing this role, I think the show's ratings reveal that I wasn't the only one who noticed there was something attractive about the show besides the plot. And uh, the stories were actually good, actually. Now, away from that, now getting back to the actress and just the physical attraction thing, you know, I never really heard anything about Terry Hatcher, the actress, that was a particular turnoff, like, like what, what I mentioned before. And, you know, I saw her on the occasional talk show or two, and I was, wow, she can actually carry on a conversation, has kind of a sense of humor, doesn't seem to be too full of herself in any unrealistic way, kind of down to earth in a lot of ways. 
And one thing that I really found surprising about her career, given the Hollywood context, was that when, right at the peak of her popularity and career, Lois and Clark had just ended, and she was cast as one of the Bond girls in an upcoming James Bond movie, right then she drops out of the business to become a stay-at-home mom and to take care of her young daughter, away from all the glitter and glamour of Hollywood. This just wasn't done. And uh, But it's something I've always kind of, it's just one of those value things that you appreciate in somebody. Now, I'm bringing all of this Terry Hatcher trivia up, not to present a biography, but to suggest from an attraction point of view, because we're talking about me here, okay, not, you know, the object, not the object of my attraction, that most of these points of trivia either had no effect on me or were for me points of admiration. They were, they were pluses. Now, if I took any one of them singly and isolated them, I don't think there's any way I could say that that was the tipping point of attraction because all kinds of people may possess the qualities that I personally like and would admire and would find attractive. So I guess my point to be made here, I think, is that physical attraction and beauty are not simply physical but represent a combination of things, all very subconscious. Um, you know, combining the physical with considerations like values, tastes, and a host of, of early life associations and experiences that all combine in a mix that we symbolically refer to as sexual chemistry. You know, that seemingly undefinable certain something that makes some relationships click, some people especially attractive to us, and which uh, doesn't even let other relationships get off the ground. Now, that's enough about me. Here's a little something about you while we're on the subject of sexual attraction and, and TV ratings in this show. So uh, please forgive my analogy here, but I just couldn't resist. One of the interesting things about the ratings of Lois and Clark was that the ratings remained erect only during the chase period and became quite flaccid when the chase was over. I wonder if you know what I mean by that. Uh, you know, like all living things that begin to die and deteriorate after consummation and reproduction, it's a cycle of life, isn't it? So, too, television show ratings wither and die when the sexual pursuer captures his or her prey. It's interesting, we all talk about being uh, married happily ever after, but our collective romantic and sexual interest in life after marriage drops precipitously after the marriage. And that's exactly what happened to Lois and Clark, although I'm sure they could have rescued the ratings, maybe by turning it into a married with children kind of show, where happily ever after seems to elude, <laughs> elude the partners. But again, that wouldn't uh, be idealism, and that would not be Superman, would it? but might still be marriage. When we return after this break, we'll be getting on to another subject, location, 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 or where sex happens might determine right from wrong. Back after this. I make fun of my wife. I do that for a living, to be honest with you. But I love that woman, and she's my best friend. Now, how many guys by your applause would consider your wife to be your very best friend? Oh, yeah. You lying bastards. All right. Your wife's not your best friend. I was lying to you. You just came along with me, didn't you? I like asking that question, because guys have been married less than a year, they'll answer right away because they're in love. Guys have been married more than 10 years, they'll answer right away out of freaking fear. <laughs> Anyone in between's just confused for a second. <laughs> Ow! Oh, yeah! <laughs> I don't know what my hesitation was, my love. <laughs> I'll tell you the hesitation. It's a lie. That's the hesitation. That's the last woman on the planet you want to have as your best friend. Now, I can be honest about this, because my wife's not here. <laughs> oh, yeah, television, right. Yeah, all right. 
<laughs> did I mention I loved her? Yeah, I think I did. All right. The guys already know why. I'll explain it to the women. It's like this. When you're a guy and your real best friend now, your true best friend says something incredibly stupid, something absolutely moronic. As a guy, you got to have the ability to look at your best friend and say, what are you a f <laughs> Well, you don't want to say that to the wife. A couple nights on the couch, you'll get that right the hell out of your vocabulary. Eh? Your wife says something incredibly stupid, you've got to look right back at her and say, mm. That's a good point, sweetie. to be back here although the last time I was here I had like a very unpleasant experience because this guy I didn't even know out of nowhere just says to me whore I, I was appalled I got up off my knees dusted myself off and I marched out of that stall with my dignity intact okay and every other guy in that men's room knew that I was a lady I'm not putting up with this Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you now till noon. Subject today has been all on a sexual theme, and right now we're going to be looking at the issue of uh, basically prostitution, especially one certain uh, aspect of it. You know, it is apparently now legal for women to appear topless in public. You know that? Public in this case meaning not just a designated public beach or a nudist camp and the like, but public like in downtown London public. Well, I'm still waiting for the revolution, but I don't think it's going to happen, okay? We, I know there was a protest about this that was held a few years back, which changed the law, because, of course, that was inequality. Men could be topless, women couldn't. But I just don't see that trend going to happen, which simply goes to reverse illustrate a point. If it's legal, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. And if it's illegal, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Consensual human sexual behavior is not driven, I think, or restricted by laws. And such behavior is really properly outside the purview of law. On the other hand, of course, non-consensual sexual behavior is very much the purview of law, but again, beyond the purview of our chosen discussion today. Now, another thing that's kind of odd about our laws is that prostitution is legal in Canada. But what is illegal is communicating for the purposes of prostitution. Now, what makes prostitution, I think, an interesting crime and in att even attempting to identify is the fact that anybody can have sex promiscuously, you know, for free. And that the legality of such activity, whether it's moral or not, whether it's kinky or whether it's considered perverse or not, uh, regardless of what type of consensual sex you might be talking about, its legality is determined, uh, with reference to prostitution, not by the sex, but by the money. Not by an exchange of bodily fluids, but by an exchange of cash. You know, there's an old joke that says that prostitution is simply a combination of two things sex and free enterprise. So which are you opposed to? Of course, as always, it's capitalism and free enterprise that's attacked by our laws so that the sex can be free, 
but the enterprise cannot. Uh, are we beginning to see a common theme here, one I've discussed many times on this show, but really never in the context of sex? The sex in this case, uh, just like global warming in other cases, only serves as a qualifier, as an excuse to seize the cash. Technically, uh, I don't think that an exchange of cash, actually, without the sex would be an issue, and certainly not in the context of prostitution. It's only when there is an equal exchange of value for value, a trade, an, ex an exchange in which both of the participants profit, that the law would intervene. Isn't that kind of weird? Now, I understand that some escort services seem to get around this problem, uh, that is, uh, being caught in a direct exchange, uh, you know, sex for money, but having a third party collect and distribute the cash through a central service agency, uh, which might even be empowered to negotiate credit and debit cards or arrange clients in advance and all that kind of stuff. So, which means that the real victim of the prostitution laws is the street-level prostitute, who generally represents the lowest rung of the trade and who's most vulnerable. Uh, considering the location of the trade. I, this is an issue that I don't think can be solved by vice squads and laws aimed specifically at sexual activity. We have to rid ourselves of the notion and approach to the problem from the proper context and in the, you know, in the proper jurisdiction of government, namely from a standpoint of property rights. Free enterprise is not free enterprise when it's conducted on government property without the consent of the government whose property it is whether we're talking about a street hooker or a hot dog vendor. The principle is the same. Citizens and taxpayers, I think, have every right to have the streets and sidewalks clear for their proper designated use. And so-called public property, just because you call it that, it's not a free-for-all for everybody and anybody to do their thing. So let's not get caught up on what their thing is, but let's look at where they're doing their thing. It's location, location, location. It's the real estate maxim. So, of course, there's a catch-22 in the sex-for-money trade. Most jurisdictions will not allow them a legal location, location, location anywhere, which, of course, brings them back to the street again. And around and around we go, and that's just pretty well a situation that will never stop in that sense. Now, of course, uh, when it comes to sex, sex is, uh, has its enemies, its proponents, and its opponents, too. And uh, I want to look at it a little bit differently from a point of view of, uh, well, I guess within marriage and the relationship of religion to marriage. And what I'm going to refer to here is uh, part of a lecture that was given at the Ford Hall Forum in Boston on December 8th, 1968. And it was done by Ayn Rand, who you know I've uh, quoted here a lot, is of course my favorite philosopher. And, and in that... Uh, lecture, she was basically uh, speaking, it was a criticism of Pope Paul VI's encyclical, uh, Popularum Progressio, on the development of peoples and of human vitae, of human life. And it basically was the church's stand on the whole sexual issue. And it, here's what she had to say. She says, the encyclical Populorum Progresso advocated global statism, while the encyclical Human Vitae forbids the use of contraceptives. The two encyclicals are strictly, flawlessly consistent, argues Rand. The first of these two encyclicals forbade ambition. The second forbids enjoyment. The doctrine that man's sexual capacity belongs to a lower or animal part of his nature has had a long history in the Catholic Church. 
It is the necessary consequence of the doctrine that man is not an integrated entity, but a being torn apart by two opposite, antagonistic, irreconcilable elements, his body, which is of this earth, and his soul, which is of another supernatural realm. According to that doctrine, man's sexual capacity, regardless of how it's exercised or motivated, not merely its abuses, or not unfastidious indulgence or promiscuity, but the capacity as such, is sinful or depraved. For centuries, the dominant teaching of the Church held that sexuality is evil, that only the need to avoid the extinction of the human species grants sex the status of a necessary evil, and therefore only procreation can redeem or excuse it. In modern times, many Catholic writers have denied that such is the Church's view. But in the encyclical Human Vitae, it prohibits all forms of contraception, except the so-called rhythm method, as a moral absolute. And why? because it is God's will. The passive obedience and helpless surrender to the physical functions of one's body, the necessity to let procreation be the inevitable result of the sexual act, is the natural fate of animals, not of men, says Rand. The encyclical does not recommend unlimited procreation. It does not object to all means of birth control, only to those it calls artificial, i.e. scientific. It does not object to man contradicting God's will, or to man being the arbiter of the sources of human life, end quote, provided he uses the means that it endorses, which is abstinence. No, the encyclical does not say that sex as such is evil. It merely says that sexual abstinence in marriage is a higher human value. Then this love is total, that is to say, it is a very special form of personal friendship, in which husband and wife generously share everything without undue reservations or selfish calculations. Now that was Rand quoting the encyclical, to which she responds, To classify the unique emotion of romantic love as a form of friendship is to obliterate it. The two emotional categories are mutually exclusive. The feeling of friendship is asexual. It can be experienced toward a member of one's own sex. And what is the common denominator of these statements? It is not merely the tenet that man, or that sex as such is evil, but deeper. It is the commandment that says one must not regard sex as an end in itself. What is so evil about that choice? There is only one answer. That choice rests on a couple's conviction that the justification of sex is their own enjoyment. Observe the encyclical's contemptuous reference to sexual desire as instinct or passion, as if passion were a pejorative term. Says the encyclical, quote, It is also to be feared that the man, growing used to the employment of anticonceptive practices, may finally lose respect for the woman, and no longer caring for her physical and psychological equilibrium, may come to the point of considering her as a mere instrument of selfish enjoyment and no longer as his respected and beloved companion, end quote. And then Rand responds, I never ever heard her say anything like this before, quote, I cannot conceive of a rational woman who does not want to be precisely an instrument of her husband's selfish enjoyment. I cannot conceive of what would have to be the mental state of a woman who, would, who could desire to accept the position of having a husband who does not derive any selfish enjoyment from sleeping with her. I cannot conceive of anyone, male or female, capable of believing that sexual enjoyment would destroy a husband's love and respect for his wife, but regarding her as a broodmare and himself as a stud would cause him to love and respect her. 
Actually, this is too evil to discuss much further, says Rand, and so she doesn't. Now, raised loosely as a Roman Catholic myself, I'm kind of familiar with these aspects of Catholic sexual doctrine, even though I personally never really accepted them, and thank goodness, too, because the, the very few couples that I actually knew closely who lived and breathed this Catholic sex for procreation doctrine were, they were positively miserable. And, of course, all the while convinced that they were the happy ones while the rest of us were going to hell on the bandwagon of sexual lust. That was basically the way it was. And it's interesting about Catholic sensibilities, too. Uh, despite a doctrine that preaches no abortion, no artificial contraception, it's a statistical fact that most Catholics vote liberal, a party that not only does not prohibit abortion, but which actually finances it. And, you know, Catholic de democratic jurisdictions around the world tend to be the most liberal with respect uh, to sexual issues, tolerance for prostitution, uh, pornography, and other forms of sexual objectivization, like even beauty contests and risque fashion shows, nude beaches, etc., etc., etc. And if you've ever watched the Latin network where you see a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Spanish culture and European culture and stuff, one thing's pretty clear. I don't think they've uh, basically... Uh, heard about uh, political correctness and the sexual equality, because it sure doesn't show there. So, you know, in the context of today's discussion, I guess uh, saying that politics makes strange bedfellows can take on a, an entirely new meaning. Now, when we return after these very important messages, we'll be talking about pornography and some of your sex fantasies. What do they mean? Back after these important messages. Hey, well, you're, uh, uh, well, there you are. I've made the bed warm for you. It, it looks, uh, warm. And I've made myself ready for you. Let's ride right past the part where you explain exactly what that means. Didn't you see you, you got a room of your own? And I'm to sleep there? That's the notion, assuming you're... Yeah, sleepy. But we've been wed, aren't we to become one flesh? Well, no, uh, we're still two fleshes here, and I think that your flesh ought to sleep somewhere else. I'm sorry, when we talked, I'd hoped, but I don't... Oh, hey, you. flesh. Um, Zafrin, it, it, it ain't a question of pleasing me. It's more a question of what's... Um of what's morally right. I do know my Bible, sir. On the night of their betrothal, the wife shall open to the man as the furrow to the plow, and he shall work in her in and again till she bring him to his fall, and rest him then upon the sweat of her breast. Oh. Good Bible. I tried phone sex recently, got my phone bill. Just the other day, they're $852. Man, don't call stuttering sluts. My sexual fantasy is to make love to Sigmund Freud's father. Mother. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW. Uh, 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call. And we're talking about the whole show's theme today is sexual, of course, and sex fantasies and pornography, degrading or healthy expression or neither. What is it? And with that, I bring to your attention a letter to the editor I saw in the London Free Press just this past March 28th, written by none other than Megan Walker, London Abused Women's Centre, and Kate Wiggins of the Women's Community House. And the heading of the uh, letter to the editor said, M Magazine for Men, Degrading to Women. And I'll read it for you. It goes like this. Quote, The March 25th magazine M, London's Magazine for Men, exploits women as sex objects and is offensive. The article, Hot Babes on Hot Bikes, with the pop-out reading, whether your ride is a hog, a chopper, or a rice burner, check out these new 2008 models, and the girls aren't bad either, end quote, is, a misogyn- is misogynist sorry, and does nothing to further an understanding of women's legitimate role in society. In the article, What a Guy Wants, men are asked, what is your favorite underwear to see a girl in? The article is appalling and an insult to women. We are uncertain as to why the newspaper feels it necessary to degrade women in this way. We are certain, however, that the content of this magazine will continue to decrease the paper's female readership. End quote. Well, there you go, eh? Exploit, sex objects, offensive, misogynist, appalling, insulting, degrading. In six sentences, they squeezed in seven of their favorite terms. You've got to hand it to them. That's pretty good. Now, interestingly, in addition to this protest letter I just read, on May 1st, uh, these local feminists publicly called upon all London Free Press subscribers to cancel their subscriptions to the paper. And why? Because apparently the free press had become masculinist and marginalizes women, and they had two issues in mind. And uh, one of those issues was the magazine pictorial we just mentioned, and the second one was because apparently... The Free Press was not publishing all of their submitted editorials or printing them the way they wanted to. So they planned to picket the Free Press on May 2nd and to have an editorial meeting with uh, Free Press editor Paul Burton that day, who ironically by the, uh, supported their position as was expressed in the letter I read. Now, I never saw a story on the protest, nor did I hear how many People cancel their subscriptions to the free press, but I wouldn't be looking to the free press to find out about a protest against the free press. And this is interesting, even more interesting. It was exactly a year previous, in April of 07, when the essentially same group of feminists made a successful play for editorial control and input to the Gazette here at on University of Western Ontario as a consequence of the Gazette's April uh, Fool Spoof edition last year. We talked about all that on our first and second shows, which are available still online. And, of course, it's all part of the greater anti-capitalist plan. And I think just another protest demonstration by the usual leftists who always use racism, and in this case sexism, as their calling card. So let's put it all into context. First of all, who's treating who as an object, quote-unquote, never, never mind the sex? It seems to me that the writers of this letter are are the guilty parties, the ones who are assuming that women are inanimate objects, let alone sex objects, as if the women in the pictorial didn't consent to appear there. Well, where, did you ever talk to them with how they feel about it? 
It's important to note that the pictorial in question, by the way, is, by all of today's possible standards of decency, a completely innocuous one. It's, it's, most people wouldn't have even noticed it. Personally, I think I would have been more attracted uh, by the model in the Susan J ad that appeared on the back of the same magazine, but that didn't get any mention from the feminists. And, you know, it's interesting because my dentist is female. Whenever I'm sitting in her waiting room, I notice that there are all these women's magazines piled on, on a couple of side tables there, and that the pictures in these catalogs and fashion magazines, for sheer raciness, uh, pretty well beat out Maxim and FHM and all those other lad magazines, as the British refer to them, that are aimed at men. And uh, interestingly, I was discussing this very issue, this very issue on the air uh, or another radio station over at CJBK with Stephanie Vivier a couple of weeks ago, and she made it very clear to me that women also like to look at women. So that's always been true. It's always, it wasn't particularly news to me, but it was a little refreshing to hear a bit of honesty about that issue for a change. So what is it that these feminist groups are really against? It's simple, isn't it? It's men. That was the crime of M Magazine. It was aimed at men. The pictorial being criticized was being aimed at men. And the Susan J. ad and all those other pictures you can get in the women's magazines, those are aimed at women, so they're okay. And that's the end of that story in terms of uh, what that whole issue is about. When we return, more on this subject after these quick clips. Back in a sec. She doesn't mind if I go to the strip clubs. Does your gal like if you go to the strip clubs? Have you ever gone? She's like, no, don't even. <laughs> See, she's answering for me. Yeah, my girlfriend doesn't mind. I don't like the strip clubs, though, personally. Like, I like to see naked women. But the women at the strip clubs, it's so mundane what they do. All they do is they just prance around naked. I think I'd get more turned on if I saw a naked woman on stage do something that I have seen naked women do in my apartment. You know? They brush their teeth naked. Paint their toes naked. That I can get into because I've seen that. I can relate to it. That's what I need. Something I can relate to. Because I've never had a naked woman in my apartment for no reason just start swinging around my halogen lamp. have been married for 44 years. I think, wouldn't you run out of topics of conversation after 44 years? I can't get through a one-night stand. <laughs> Discussion after sex. Get out. <laughs> so I leave. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and we'll be with you from now until noon, just about 15 minutes left. Uh, just to continue on this whole subject, there are certainly other opinions and viewpoints on this and uh, on the subject of pornography and prostitution and that kind of thing specifically, and right now uh, mostly on pornography. And this again, I, I, I read the issue on sex by Ayn Rand earlier. Now this was her actual, the only thing I've ever found her say ever about this particular issue of pornography, and she said this, it was only a paragraph, quote, 
I want to state for the record my own view of what is called hardcore pornography. I regard it as unspeakably disgusting. I have not read any of the books or seen any of the current movies belonging to that category, and I do not intend to read or see them. The descriptions provided in legal cases, as well as the modern touches and softcore productions, are sufficient grounds on which to form an opinion. But the reason of my opinion is the opposite of the usual one. I do not regard sex as evil, I regard it as good, as one of the most important aspects of human life, too important to be made a subject of public anatomical display. But the issue here is not one's view of sex. The issue is freedom of speech and of the press. That is the right to hold any view and to express it, end quote. Now, that was Ayn Rand back in 1973, August 13th, in the Ayn Rand letter, and I'm sure she would not have even been aware of anything like the Internet or the kind of availability of pornography that exists today, in today's world. And... Uh, Certainly, so her basic objection to porn was that it is public, you know, a public anatomical display. Now, I don't know that that's kind of a narrow grounds to pick on because I don't think it it states a case because, let's face it, so is stripping. Uh, so are the runways of some of the racier fashion shows. You could call them, uh, you know, anatomical displays. So is Playboy magazine, in which uh, Ayn Rand's interview by Alvin Toffler appeared. Uh, way back in March 1964. I can certainly relate to extreme discomfort that one might experience if you had to appear naked in front of strangers. It's, it's kind of scary enough at the doctor's office, if you ask me. Uh, but whether that's the thing that makes it unspeakably disgusting, I can't say with any certainty, at least from Rand's point of view, because she didn't really speak of it. But I tend to disagree with her complete one-brush-stroke fits-all forms of explicit sexual expression. Uh, you know, as a writer who believed in the romantic school of writing, this was Ayn Rand, which is not to be confused with romantic novels in this sense, but romantic in the sense of idealism, a style of literary writing. It's not surprising that Rand held very high literary and moral standards, but I think it's a mistake to try and judge pornography by literary standards. You see people doing that all the time. And I also think it's a mistake to assume that pornography has no right to exist or that it's all unspeakably disgusting, though I can certainly assure you some of it is, which is, uh, you know, using one broad brushstroke to condemn every form of public sexual entertainment. Now, you know, the sex impulse is not the result of a rational process entirely, and I don't believe uh, for a minute that enjoying some kind of external sexual entertainment or stimulus separate from any personal relationship you might have indicates in and of itself, per se, anything about the moral or ethical makeup of the person who's experiencing that. And, uh, you know, unlike some of the people whom I will cite with very differing opinions, I think there are people who can enjoy pornography who are very moral, just as I believe there are many people who condemn pornography who are not very moral. One does not equal the other, and there's tons of evidence and argument to clearly demonstrate that fact, but that's not today's show. Now, Michael Corrin, I'm sure, would certainly disagree with me on this point. In a column about pornography being available in hotel rooms uh, that he wrote back on October 13th, 07 in the Free Press, Michael Corrin, it's an X-rated world, wrote the following, quote, and basically the story was about a mother, uh, apparently she checked into a hotel and turned on the TV, she had her kids with her and there uh, on the TV popped up some porn and it was a big issue and blah, blah, blah. But here's what Michael Corrin, sort of his commentary on it. 
quote, This is about a fundamental shift in societal expectations and assumptions where the freedom of some pathetic soul to play with himself while watching broken robotic people pretending to enjoy loveless sex is considered more significant than the freedom of a mother to trust that her young children can turn on the TV and not be abused. A hotel room is a place for temporary rest, nothing more and nothing less, but the idea that sexual stimulation also is required is a novel one. Added to this is the fact that many men who take advantage of this rubbish are married and would never watch a porn channel at home. So in a way, it's partly a type of adultery and certainly a form of dishonesty. How interesting it is that an increasing number of hotels refuse to continue the time-honored tradition of placing Gideon Bibles in their rooms and hardly any are removing hardcore pornography from their televisions. The world has gone mad. Absolutely X-rated mad, concludes Corin. And maybe it has. Maybe it has. But to paint all people who might uh, masturbate or have sexual fantasies, uh, with or without porn, you know, I don't really see why that should make any difference if it really comes down to it. <laughs> Does it make any difference? But to paint them all as pathetic souls is an opinion that some might regard a little uh, un unhealthy in and of itself. And you know, frankly, if you're watching broken robotic people pretending to enjoy loveless sex, then turn the channel, for heaven's sakes. That's crappy porn. <laughs> There's got to be some better porn on some other channel, you'd think. And, you know, who said anything about love? I, th I think there's a little bit of confusion here. Uh, Corin's comment on this, by the way, begs for a look at the porn industry from the point of view of those who are actually producing and appearing in the porn. I think you might be surprised at who's making porn these days, and by who, I mean the type of people who are making it. And this is certainly worth a look. We'll, we'll do that on another show. But my quick observation on this is that from the other side of the camera, porn is very much a big business, and it's also a lifestyle. Generally, the people doing porn today, it's above ground now. They want to do it. They enjoy what they do, even though it might be work and may surprisingly have moral standards that often match those of the more religious type than you might ever imagine. It's a really strange world out there, one in which appearances are uh, virtually always deceiving, because, let's face it, fantasy is what it's all about, so everything is a kind of a deception, isn't it? But today I'm sticking to the consumer uh, point of view on the subject, which is really a different focus. And... Speaking further to, to, to Corin's point there, I'm, I have to ask myself, are spouses obliged to share every one of their sexual fantasies with each other, or are they obliged to completely repress them and never let them surface again? Uh, if you believe that they're a form of adultery or a form of dishonesty, then how can you avoid like one or the other conclusion? I think it's a really not a healthy way to look at it, because whatever else you can say about erotica in any form or sexual fantasy, as long as it, remain, it remains fantasy, uh, it's, all, it's all in the realm of thought. It's not in the realm of action. And what if that poor, quote, pathetic soul, end quote, that Corin refers to is single or even more likely? Maybe it's a married couple who just checked into the hotel for a bit of excitement away from the kids or a night on the town. If you share the fantasy, is it still adultery according to this line of thinking? I don't know. That's why I neither believe fantasies nor erotica are a form of either dishonesty or adultery in and of themselves. They could be part of it. But uh, dishonesty and adultery have to do, I think, with commitment of action and with the ethics of keeping promises. Now, uh, 
that's sort of a bit about the whole people objecting to it. Interesting, I, I was, uh, you know, the whole issue of pornography and prostitution, those two issues were among the very first issues I ever addressed in an official forum way back in the 1980s under the representation of the Freedom Party of Ontario, which was making official presentations to the federal government's uh, Fraser Committee on Pornography and Prostitution. And uh, I tell you that one of the biggest issues is, of course, what is what is pornography? What what's the definition of it? And uh, I looked up two dictionaries, and I found one that said um, Funk and Wagnall's definition: obscene literature or art. That was it. And I knew that wasn't right. That's not what pornography is. Although a lot of people I know use the word that way. So then I went to my Webster's Unabridged, one of those real thick dictionaries that actually has the proper definitions in it and history and the root of the word. And the word pornography uh, originally came from the Greek, from the word porne, which means prostitute, and graphene, which means to write. And the three basic definitions are, one, originally a, de a description of prostitutes and their trade, two, Writings, pictures, etc., intended to arouse sexual desire. And that's pretty well the definition I've been using today, and maybe the third one too, the production of such writings and pictures. Interestingly enough, right beside that definition, I found another definition that said pornocracy. And I'm going, pornocracy, is that for real? And it said, yeah, from the Greek porn, prostitute, and kratine, to rule. And it means government by prostitutes domination, sway, or influence of profligate women, specifically the government of Rome in the early part of the 10th century. Well, that must have been the good old days, eh? And uh, just wrapping up here, you know, basically the whole issue, of course, over the definition of pornography is uh, if you want to prohibit it, basically people call it pornography. If they like it, then they call it erotica. And that's the bottom line. You won't see any difference on that at all. So I just want to finish up the show with something here that I just got out of a textbook. It's called The Fundamentals of Human Sexuality, and it was actually one of the textbooks used, I don't know in what course here, back in the 70s here on the University of Western Ontario. And this sex section just sort of talked about uh, the function of sexual fantasies, and I'm quoting from that textbook right now, quote, Erotic fantasies fulfill many functions. First, they're a source of pleasure. Second, they're often substitutes for action. And third, some fantasies revolve around future events. An individual anticipates problems, plans for contingencies, and mentally rehearses alternative modes of action to lessen his own anxiety. Can fantasies be evaluated by content? This is interesting. We have no such reliable yardstick of normality. Subjective reaction cannot be taken as the sole criterion, for some people are disturbed by thoughts of very common activities, where, whereas others may be unaffected by even very bizarre fantasies. Fantasies of using force in sexual encounters or of being raped are quite common, certainly as Anne Landers discovered when she was inundated by uh, all the married couples to her column in the Free Press who said that they uh, practice it quite regularly. But not infrequently, it says, a woman will imagine that she's a prostitute and will be simultaneously titillated and disgusted by the vision. What do such thoughts mean and how does one deal with them? It may be comforting to realize that most of these fantasies are never acted upon and that they do not define us as adults. 
There is no easy way to deal with unpleasant or disturbing fantasies, they conclude, because conscious attempts to dispel them often simply cause us to focus on them even more strongly. End quote. So I guess uh, when it comes right down to it, I guess we can conclude that like it or not, our largest sex organ is the human brain. And it's what you think about sex that it stimulates you and decides, you know, sort of determines uh, what it is that you find personally attractive. I think that uh, things like pornography have been falsely blamed for antisocial behavior. It's, it's always that same pattern. You, know, you blame the thing, not the behavior, whatever it might be. And that always takes us away from the issues of individual responsibility. I do not think that uh, enjoyment of sexuality or enjoyment of sexual entertainment or anything like that requires or is necessarily parallel to any sort of uh, disrespect for anybody. And I don't think you should be disrespecting anybody who's in that industry as well. But that's it for today and our show about sex and sexual motivation. So I hope you'll join us again next week when we will return with another episode of uh, Just Right. And uh, we'll hope you'll be back. And so until then, uh, keep right, stay right, do right. Act right, think right, and we'll see you again next week. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Why are condoms named Trojan and garbage bags named Glad? <laughs>